Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Amen. Good morning. How are you guys? Awesome. Um, you know, it's funny. I was, I was writing out just something I felt like the Lord was showing me during worship. And I wrote this down. I just wanted to read it to you guys. It says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always responded to hunger, persistence, to faith, and to people that want more, that ask, seek, and knock. Revival is in His heart, so, as, so it comes into ours as we draw near to Him. When we believe truth, when we live as though His truth is the only truth, when we begin to prophesy the things that are on His heart, like Ezekiel prophesying the breath to the bones, we begin to see His desire manifest. I think there's something to knowing Him in a way where you actually hear His voice so that when you speak, you're speaking the things that He would have us declare. He said to Ezekiel, He said, I want to do this to these, to these dry bones. You all, we know the story, right? Can these bones live? Oh Lord, You know. Well, I want to do this, Ezekiel. I'm going to make them live. I'm going to raise up a mighty army, but I want You to declare it. I'm going to tell you what I want. I'm going to t- declare to you what's in my heart, Ezekiel. And then I want you to turn and look at these dry bones and I want you to speak and I want my heart to come out of your mouth. And when you do that, son of man, then you'll see it happen. You'll see the things that are in my heart come to be. And so Ezekiel prophesies and he, he says and he declares everything. But the first time he does, the breath doesn't come. God tells him again, okay, now, son of man, prophesy to the breath, say to the four winds, come. And I just want to tell you and encourage you that that you could be hearing the heart of God so clearly and speaking the heart of God so clearly, and don't be discouraged if the first time you speak what God calls you to speak, you don't instantly see what God showed you was going to happen. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. Don't give up. Don't start blaming yourself and think I missed it. Samuel could have done that so easily. Samuel, I want you to go to the house of of Jesse and I want you to anoint one of his sons, the one that I will show you to be king. And so all the sons of Jesse pass before Samuel. Every one of them. He tells Samuel, he says, get all your sons. One of them is going to be anointed king. So he assumes that, you know, when a prophet told you something back then, you did it. It wasn't like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Like, you know, they hacked people to pieces on the courthouse with swords. Like, it, it, they weren't to be trifled with. And so, when he told Jesse, get all of your sons, he had to believe that all of Jesse's sons were there. And so, one by one, they passed before him. And, 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 and Jesse sees the, or Samuel sees the first one come. He's a mighty warrior, a strong, tall, handsome man. And he looks kingly. And Samuel assumes this must be the king. God says, I haven't chosen him. So the next one comes, and now he's the second best. He's the second most logical choice. And Samuel says, well, surely he must be the king. God says, I haven't chosen him either. See, Samuel, because while you're busy looking at the outside, I'm looking at the heart. And so one by one, they all pass before him. And one by one, God says, no. No, 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 no. Until all the sons are passed by. And Samuel is facing the same decision that you and I will face so many times in our lives. And what he did is so important. Because he's come to the end of the sons of Jesse. And yet God hasn't said that one of them is king. But he knows that God said one of his sons is supposed to be king. What does he do? 
And in that moment, I believe so many people have walked away from what God's called them to because they've done everything that they know to do. And rather than trusting God, rather than saying, I know what God said to me, and if I haven't seen it come to pass, then that means that there's more to it than what I can see. Rather than doing that so many times, I feel like in our lives we're tempted to walk away and say, I must have missed God, or maybe I didn't hear Him right, or I guess that wasn't God. And we we doubt ourselves, we doubt what we heard, we doubt everything. We doubt that maybe, maybe it wasn't God, you know, because we're not secure in the fact that we hear and know His voice. That's why Jesus wanted us to be sure that not only could we hear His voice, but that we could know His voice. That's why it's so important that you know His voice, not just hear it. There's a thousand voices speaking. They all want your attention. They're all vying for your ear. But His voice is the one He said that they would hear and know that it's His voice. And so Samuel plants his feet in the ground, anchors himself in the Word that God gave him, looks square at Jesse and says, you must have another son. Because God told me that one of your sons was going to be the king. And if all of your sons have passed before me and one of them isn't the king, there's only one solution. God didn't miss it. I didn't miss it. You missed it. I told you to get all of your sons, even the scrawny one on the back side of the hill that you didn't want me to know that you had. I just want to encourage you this morning. Listen to me. When you know that God has spoke to you and you have a word from God and everything around you looks like maybe you didn't hear Him right and you know that it's Him, that's why you have to know Him. You have to know Him. You have to know His voice because how can you anchor if you don't know it's Him? How can you be certain? If Samuel's not certain he's heard the Lord, if Samuel doesn't know the voice of God, if Samuel hasn't developed a relationship with the Lord to where when God speaks, Samuel responds and he knows that it's God and he's walked into so many situations that God's called him to where things didn't look like it was it, that, that they were going to line up and yet he gets to this place where he's done what God's called him to do and all the sons have passed before him and Samuel has one response. I'll question everything but God. And if that means I have to question you, Jesse, I'll question you because I won't question him. You must have another son. Don't walk away until you've seen what God told you to declare and what was going to come to pass comes to pass. I don't care what it makes you look like to the rest of the world. Because in that moment, Samuel takes a risk because he risks looking like a fool in front of the entire house of Jesse because all the sons have passed by and they're all standing there. And Jesse's standing there. And Samuel's integrity and Samuel's reputation as a prophet of God is on the line. And he looks directly at Jesse and he declares to him, well, you must have another son. He says, well, there is this one. Imagine that. God's never missed it. He's never missed it. Well, there is this one. And Samuel knows. Then that's the king. And he tells them, nobody sit down. We're not touching the food. We're not doing anything. What was wrong with the food? Nothing. But when God sends you to anoint a king, you don't eat until you've done what he's called you to do. When God tells you to go and do something, make sure you don't get caught up in all the other things while you're waiting. It's not a short walk from the backside of the shepherd's field to the house. The food's sitting there. It's tempting on the table. There's going to be so many times where what God's called you to means that you have to wait a minute. Just wait. 
Don't get caught up in everything else. Don't put anything else in front of the thing you know that He's called you to. Even if it's something that's not wrong, it's wrong in that moment if it distracts you from the thing that He's called you to. There's plenty of good things. You know, Martha's doing good things. She's showing hospitality, which is something we're commanded to do in the Bible, but in the moment it's the wrong thing because Jesus is speaking. And hearing His voice is more important than preparing His meal. There's always time to prepare the meal. There's only one time, one time that you can listen and that's when He's speaking. There's always going to be time to eat, but I'm not going to eat a thing. And we're not even going to sit down until He gets here because God sent me here to anoint a king. And I'm going to anoint a king. So David comes and of course is anointed. And I just I want to just encourage you. I, I feel like there are some people in here that when I'm speaking this, you feel like I'm speaking right to you. Stay the course. Don't give up. And believe that no matter what you see around you, that you everything else is subject to question. The one thing that isn't is the voice of God that you knew you heard. Question everything but Him. Everything but Him. And I think that's it's why God has had us camped out for so long on knowing His voice. Because I feel like in order for you to be able to speak to other people on behalf of the Father, you have to be able to hear what the Father is saying to you. Open your Bibles. I want to expand our view of God a little bit this morning. I remember the first time I read this and studied into this and looked into the original language. It blew my mind and it totally changed the way that I viewed the Father. Because, you know, I don't care where you come from, you have a picture of what God is like. And it's incomplete. And no, Nobody has a complete picture of Him. Nobody understands fully Him. Nobody has discovered the depths of His love. Nobody quite understands everything about Him. We're on this journey of discovering who He is. And we know Him more and more every day. And our picture now is a lot clearer than our picture was. But no matter where you come from, no matter what, you, what kind of church or non-church background or family or traditions you were raised in, you have a picture of God. And, and, and the more accurate your picture of God is, the more accurately you can hear Him when He speaks. It, because if you picture somebody to be a certain way, you'll take the things they say through that filter. And sometimes you won't even allow yourself to hear the things that they're speaking because you can't imagine that would ever come from their mouth because you don't know that they're like that. Have you ever heard someone tell you that someone said something and you said they would never say that? Anybody? I've had people tell me that, you know, oh, so-and-so said this, and I look at them and I said, they would never say that. I don't know who told you that, but I promise you, they would never say that. Why? Because I know them. And I can't imagine that coming out of their mouth. And if they did say that, you're only giving me a portion of what they said, and you're leaving out something really important, because I cannot imagine them ever being in a position where they would just say that for no reason, out of the blue, and in the context you're presenting it in. Why? Because I know them we got to know the Father that way. Because the way that we believe that He is is the way that we'll receive and we'll hear from Him. Everything in your life comes through a filter. Everything. That's why Tozer said, what you think when you think about God is the most important thing. Why? Because it doesn't change God, but it does change the way you receive Him, the way you view Him, and the way you hear Him. And so, um, open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 14. It's so cool that Dylan said what he said, the judge shared what he shared, because I feel like it just goes along with all this stuff. It's almost like God knew. It's crazy. You guys doing good this morning? Yeah? I'm excited this morning. Listen, I am so stoked this morning. 
Um, because I really feel like not, it's, it's not like, a, oh, you know, something's going to happen. Like, I feel like we've, we're stepping into so much that God has for us. And there's just people are coming alive and believing truth and living their lives, expressing the truth of the gospel in their lives. And you just see the fruit just popping up everywhere. And as people press in, I'm telling you, God has, is the same yesterday and today forever. He can't help himself. He sees a woman who's hungry and desperate, and he says, my time hasn't come. He says to her, he says, I came for the, for, the, for the children, not for the dogs. It's not right to give to the dogs what is meant for the children. She says, yeah, but master, even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall from the table. That sounds harsh to us. All he was saying to her was, you don't understand. I didn't come for you right now. Your time has not come yet. But she's so persistent and has such a draw on him that he turns to her and says, be it to you as, as, according to your faith. What's he saying? I can't help it. You've made a draw on me. Why? Because I always respond where there's hunger and where there's faith and where there's belief. The centurion is a Roman soldier. The people who are oppressing the people he's there to set free. Can you imagine how this would have messed with the minds of the, of, of the Jewish people, you, you, you can kind of understand when you think through a natural lens why they were a little confused about this Jesus who's the king of the Jews and the great Messiah as he's healing the centurion who is the person responsible for oppressing them's child, our servant. Right? But what is he, what, and, and, and he's not there for the centurion, but he can't help it because the centurion looks at him and says, oh no, you don't even have to come to my house for I too am a man who is under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. Just at the word, I know my servant will be healed. And he says, greater faith have I not seen in all of Israel. And the report came that from that moment, his, his servant was healed. Why? Because he can't help himself where there's a draw that's placed on him, where there's faith that's put, where there's persistence that's put. He can't help himself. He just can't. He just responds. It's who he is. It's what he does. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm telling you, listen, revival is not praying for God to get excited about an idea that we're excited about. Listen, be careful, because a lot of times our prayers will sound like we have this great idea, and if God would just get on board with it, we'd see the nations changed. Come on, look. I'm not saying, you know, you got to carefully dissect your words. I'm saying the position of your heart. Make sure that your prayers don't sound like someone who's got something figured out. And man, if God would just understand the things that I understand, we could really change the world. It's His heart. The fact that you want it is because he, it's in His heart and He's putting the, His desires into your heart. What does He say? He says, delight yourself in Me, says the Lord, and I'll give you the desires of your heart. He's not saying, delight yourself in Me, ask Me for an airplane and I'll give it to you. He's saying, delight yourself in Me and I'll put the things in your heart that I want in your heart so that your desires line up with My desires so that when you're praying, you're actually praying the will of the Father. I thought so too. And so the more we understand about Him, the clearer our picture is of Him, the greater place of faith we can pray from. The more you know Him, the more you believe in Him, the more you trust Him, the greater the level of faith that you'll have when you're praying. We're not about like measuring faith. Well, I guess your faith. Listen, don't, don't, don't ever let someone put pressure on you and say, well, if you believed, you know, blah, blah, blah. Listen, every one of us is on a journey to understanding the heart of the Father. Some of us understand some things that others don't. Some of us don't understand things over here that others over here don't. And all of us together are getting a revelation of who we is and who we are in Him. There's no pressure. We're not inspecting faith by fruit. We're not called to be fruit inspectors. He said you'll know them by their fruit, not check them for fruit. 
You realize that? He never called you to start shaking branches to see if fruit falls. Aren't you glad you're never called to be a fruit inspector? You just said you know them by their fruit. In other words, if you see people that are in love with me, you'll see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Not if you want to know if they love me, check their tree for fruit. You're never called to that. And these signs will follow them that believe. They'll lay hands on the sick. They'll do all these things. So I must not believe. No, he's just saying, listen, in the course of your life, if you actually are walking after me, you'll look back and you'll see that those things actually followed you. That where you went, these things happened. Not that every single time and you go from being a believer to an unbeliever based on what you see in the moment or in a circumstance. There's pressure in that. There's no pressure in following him. Just following him. Just responding out of the love that you have in your heart for people. That's the whole reason we're doing it anyways. It's because you love them. If you're not moved by compassion, you're moved by some need to prove something. It's all about you and it's not about them. And it's probably not going to happen anyways because James says you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask with selfish ambitions. He's saying you're asking for all the wrong reasons and then wondering why the prayers aren't being answered. I better reel it in or I'm going to get so far out in the weeds. Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, We're going to read 14 to 17. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you it's alive. God, that it is active and it's living and that it, it, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. God, that it, it divides and it splits and it reveals, God, and it sharpens and it strengthens. It prunes and encourages. It grows us, God. I just pray today that as we, as we learn from Your Word, Holy Spirit, that You speak through me today. That the words I speak would be from the heart of the Father. I pray that they would fall in, in good soil. That our hearts would take the seed of the Word in. And that it would produce fruit in our lives. That a world that doesn't know You, God, would taste and see that You're good by the fruit of our lives. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is a prophecy that's being declared uh, in the book of Zephaniah. It's a prophecy to God's people, right? And so I just want us to like, I'm not saying like, you know, because there's always the, the, the flip side of things and we have to understand the full nature and character of God. But this is God talking to his people. Okay, you've got to understand a lot of the things we read about God where it says fire came from his nostrils and he swooped in and destroyed He's talking about the enemies of the people of God. That's not talking about you. David says that. He says, smoke billowed as the Lord was on, on His throne on high. And like, a, like he says, He came in furiously and destroyed. Listen, don't, that's not God coming for you. That's God coming for the enemy of your soul. If you're born again, like these promises are for you because these are to His people. And so... This uh, a prophecy here, and I just want to like, 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 just to expand a little bit of this. God's not quite as tame and demure as you think. He is not quite as well behaved as we imagine. He is perfect love, but he's wild. 
And his love for us is, is a little bit of hard for us to fathom at times. His desire for us is a little bit strange if we're used to picturing him as being this stoic old man on a throne. A lot of the times, be careful, your picture of God isn't Santa Claus. He's not an old man with a beard that, that is everywhere at once and sees everything is keeping a list and is going to give you what you deserve based on whether you've been naughty or nice. This is family service, so I won't continue on that line of thought. But, but I am saying that, that you could be susceptible to seeing God that way by things you might have learned as a child about Santa. Nobody wants a lump of coal. So be good, for goodness sake. You can't be good for goodness sake. You can only be good because of His great name's sake. You can't be good for goodness sake. You can be good because He put Himself inside of you and He is good. And the life I live is no longer I who lives, but Christ in me. That's why I can be good. My righteousness was his filthy rags. That's why I had to get born again so that I no longer was walking around with my own righteousness. I took a robe of righteousness that was purchased at Calvary. He made a suit that fit me like a glove and he covered me with his righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin that I, that you, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became something so you could become something. And that's who you are. Not because of your goodness, because of his goodness. Well, you know, my righteousness is filthy rags. Absolutely, so exchange it for His. Quit walking around with your rags when there's a robe promised to you by your Father. All He's waiting for is what? That one turn of the heart. That's why He runs and puts the robe on the Son. What's He saying? I have this robe for you and I want to cover you in Me. But I can't do it until you actually turn towards Me and then I'm waiting and here I come. And you can't stop Me. And I'm not ashamed of you. I'll do it out in public in front of everybody. I don't care if they know where you've been and where you came from. In front of everybody on the road, I'll come running to you and make a public display of how much I love you, how much I'm proud of you. I'll put my name on your finger. I'll put my shoes on your feet. I don't even want you bringing back the dust of where you were back into my home when you come because there's nothing there that belongs there. That's the Gospel. (laughs) That's about His... Yeah. Yay God. That's the Gospel. That's our Father. He's not in heaven. Stoic. It says His heart is moved. Like His heart is actually moved by what you're dealing with. By what you're going through. He's moved. It says He sees if if, when, when a feather falls from a sparrow... And he never called a sparrow what he called you. Because everything else was good, but man was very good, exceedingly good. The greatest, the crown pinnacle, the jewel in creation was man. And yet the things that he just called good, he understands when a, when a feather falls from one of them. You realize a sparrow loses feathers all the time and it doesn't harm them, and yet he's aware of things that happen to them that don't even harm them. How much more is he aware of the things that, are, that the enemy's trying to do to harm you? Yeah. It's, it, you should read it sometime if you don't. I, I'm not saying you don't. You probably do. I'm saying if you don't, you should read it because all that stuff's in your Bible. And they're all promises to you. They're all things that He's declared about you. Okay, so, so he, says, um, he says to the people, He says to shout for joy. That word there for shout actually means to split the ears. 
It means to split the ears. That's not like, woo! Don't do it now. Not right the second. But he's not like this, this tame God that everything is neat and organized. He says, split the ears and shout for triumph. And, and he, says, um, he says, rejoice and exalt with all your heart. The word exalt there means to leap with joy. This is God talking to us and saying, I want you to shout so loudly it splits the ears and I want you to leap with joy. Here I am to worship. That's awesome when that's what you're doing. But there should be times where it looks a little different than that too. Right? Like if you never find yourself, it says when the men got healed, what did he say? He went walking and leaping and praising God. You think anybody thought to go to him and tell him, oh brother, listen, uh, you know, God's not quite like that. Let's bring it down a notch. He wouldn't have listened to them because his life was changed and he was so overwhelmed by what God was doing that the expression was coming out on the outside. You know, some of those, you, you, I've heard people tell me, well, I just, you know, I worship on the inside. That's awesome, but at some point it should make its way out if for no other reason than God actually says to his people to exalt, which means to leap with joy and to shout, to split the ears. So this is God, okay? He's bringing us in on this. And there's, he, there, there's, he's going to give you good reason for doing that if you didn't know why you should do that in a few verses he's about to tell you the lord has taken away his judgments against you and he has cleared away your enemies colossians 2 13 because everything that's declared in here has been accomplished in jesus which means that all of this is legal for you to hold on to and to claim as your own promises Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us. That sounds to me like He has taken away His judgments against you. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. That sounds like He's cleared away your enemies. He's saying, listen you guys, there's a day coming where you're going to shout so loud that it splits the ears and you're going to leap with joy and you're going to rejoice in triumph because God is going to take away every one of His judgments against you and clear away your enemies. And then Paul writes to us in Colossians and says, you guys, at the cross, that which he was talking about, that is this. Because He took away the decree that was hostile against you. The judgment of God that was against you for the sin that was in your life. For the sin that you were born into and the sin that you committed. It was canceled, having nailed it to the cross. And then it says He's going to clear away your enemies. He says he, he didn't just clear them away. He didn't just quietly sweep them away and say, hey, I don't want you to bother my children anymore. I don't want you to have any authority over them anymore. It says He made a public display of them, having defeated them and overcoming them and triumphing over them through Him. What's He saying? It wasn't this quiet thing. God wasn't in the back room going, okay, now we're going to sweep the enemy away. Okay, go ahead, sweep them away. No, no. He made a public display of them. 
In other words, the whole spiritual realm was watching as Jesus destroyed every power and every authority that was taken on and given to them by Adam as He won every bit of it back. That's why Jesus said, all authority has been given to Me. Now you go in My name. That's why when you pray in Jesus' name, it's not finishing your prayer with in Jesus' name, Amen. I mean, that might be a good habit to remind yourself of whose name you're in, but that's not what He's saying when He said anything you pray in My name. We've made it, we, we want to make everything a ritual and a formula, and so we do that, right? And it just becomes this thing, and we say it at the end of our prayer, and we say, well, Jesus said to pray in my name. That's not what he's saying. In my name, in me means in covenant with me. It means you're actually in me. Jesus said, I in them, and, and, and you in me. We're all in unity together. What was he saying? He's saying they're in me. They're in covenant with me. He seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. It's not this idea of like, well, I cap my prayer off with the cherry on top of in Jesus' name, amen. It means I'm praying from a place of being in His name. And He said, when you pray anything, you ask anything in My name, it will be done. What's He saying? If you're walking in covenant with Me, the things that I put in your heart when you pray them, you'll see them come to pass. What's that? Ezekiel, speak to these bones. In covenant with the Father, he hears the heart of the Father. He declares what the Father's saying, and he sees the heart of the Father come to pass. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, Anything you ask in my name. Not go out and live selfishly and cap your prayers with, In Jesus' name, amen, and then expect them to come to pass. Don't make a ritual out of something that he's trying to teach as a principle. He's saying, Listen, when you're in me, when you're walking in me, in the light, If you delight yourself in me, I'll give you the desires of my heart. Where are the prayers that we're praying from coming from if we find our delight in Him? They're coming from the desires that He placed in our hearts. So when we pray, we have confidence before Him. And we know that the things we ask for we'll have because we're agreeing with the heart of God, not trying to talk God into our own plans. Then you can actually pray in faith because you know this isn't my prayer. This is, it didn't take any faith once God told Ezekiel exactly what He was going to do. Hardly. I mean, he had to actually do it and believe that he heard God. But other than that, it didn't take a whole lot of faith. Why? Because he heard God declare what was going to happen. All it took then was for him to believe and agree and declare it and see it happen. That's when you pray with faith because you know where the prayer is motivated by. It's coming from the Father. It's coming from His heart in your heart. It's coming from Him changing you into the image of His Son and making you like Him. Come on. That's what he said when he asked anything in my name. Don't just cap your prayers with the Christian cherry. In Jesus' name, amen. Make sure that you're asking in Him. Make sure that you're asking from a place of saying, because of the covenant I have with you, because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me, I come before you, Father, and I believe that this thing that you've birthed inside of me is your heart, and so I declare this. And I ask for this, knowing that you'll give it to me because it was your idea to begin with. That's the prayer of faith. It says, do not be afraid and do not let your hands fall limp. You know that fear often steals your praise? You know what often steals your surrender to Him? Because the one that you fear or the thing that you fear is the thing that you've surrendered yourself to. Listen, why? Why? Because you can't be afraid unless you believe the lie. 
or believe the truth. And when you come into agreement with a lie, there's no way that you can live your life surrendered to Him. You lose your surrender as fear takes its place. Listen, when you start to believe the lies of the enemy are true, and you start to live in a place of fear, the first thing that will happen is the things that you know you should do. Praying, believing, praising, all that stuff will start to go away. You'll find yourself backed into a hole and your hands will go limp. And this is what he's talking about. Paul said, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, listen, we know that God, he said, pray for all men, especially for authorities and all that stuff, right? And he says, because we know that God is, is willing that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth. All would be saved. He says, therefore, I want men lifting up holy hands in prayer everywhere. What was he saying? Listen, it doesn't matter what the authorities around you look like. Believe that God wants every single person to come to know the truth and never, ever let your hands grow limp. Never let your hands drop. Never throw your hands down in despair and walk away and feel like there's nothing that you can do. Because you're called to pray for those people, not to agree with the enemy's judgment over them. It doesn't take faith to look and see what's happening and agree with what is. It takes faith to look and see what's happening and agree with what God's heart is for the situation. Everybody can look at something and judge it by what's going on and what they see with their eyes. But it says that we would not judge with our eyes nor what we hear with our ears. Well then, if, if that's the case, then that means that what I see in here is secondary to what God is saying and what His heart is. So I never look at a situation and judge it to be hopeless. Ever. Because I know the One who is hope. And hope is supposed to reside within me. Because He is the hope of the world. The Christ in you is the hope of glory. That means that you carry the hope of the world inside of you because Jesus is the hope of glory. And if the ones who actually carry hope are hopeless, then how hopeless is the situation? Because you're called to be someone who can stand in the face of something that everybody else says is hopeless, and yet because of Christ inside of you, because Christ in you, you look at the situation and you have nothing but hope because you believe that everybody is within the realm of His hope. Everybody is within the realm of being changed by Him, and there's nobody who's ever hopeless. And don't ever, ever, ever allow yourself to look at somebody else and judge them to be hopeless. Because when you do that, you create a place inside of your heart that says there's a place for a person to be that is beyond the power of God to change them. And if you believe that about somebody else, eventually you'll believe that about yourself. Because with the judgments you make, it's judged to you. That doesn't mean God's in heaven saying, well, you want to say that? Okay, then I'll make you hopeless. No, no, no. What he's saying is the way that you judge, you open yourself up to receiving that same judgment and it'll come from you. And you let it in. And you enabled it because you allowed yourself to believe someone else was hopeless. Which created a place for you to believe that maybe you are too. And you can find yourself in a situation that you believe is hopeless because you made that judgment about other people. Don't ever judge someone to be hopeless. Ever. The, 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 the huge problem with that is, is that the hope of the world, the hope of glory to the world is Christ in you. It's Christ in you is the hope of glory. That means that the situation that everyone else says is hopeless, you could run to it and believe that the hope of glory is inside of you. What if everybody who has Christ in them, which is the only hope there is, judged the situation hopeless and walked away from it? That's what the church does sometimes. We look at things and we all make these corporate judgments and we say, well, that's just hopeless. It's hopeless because the ones who have the hope have judged it to be so.
Don't let that thinking come into your mind. The enemy doesn't believe that in the middle of crisis, that in the middle, listen, problems are real. That doesn't mean, like, people are like, well, so you just, you just deny that it's there. No, I deny that what I see or anything else has more ability to impact me than the Word of God and the truth that He's spoken. I trust His promise over everything. It's coming to a place of Samuel. It says, look, I'm not going to deny what I see. I see that every one of your sons has passed before me, and none of them has been crowned king, and I'm supposed to be here to crown a king but I'm going to believe what you said over what I see. So I will deny something when I'm faced with a crisis. When I'm faced with a problem, I have to deny something. I either have to deny the promise of God or I have to deny what I see. I can't live in the reality of both. So every one of us lives in denial anyway. So don't worry when people tell you you're in denial. All that means is what? I'm denying that this is greater than that. So yes, at some point in my life, I have to live in denial. Because you know what? There was a time in my life where I, I was absolutely living for myself. I was living selfishly. And, and everything about me, if you looked at me from the outside looking in, said there was no hope for me. I was on a destructive path that ended in one of two ways. Either I was going to be dead or I was going to be in jail. Because that's where every one of my friends that had ended up, the, their, their journey had taken them. And, and I, was, I was living that way, and my mom was faced with this. And at some point, she had to deny what she saw and believe what God said above that. And every time, I promise you, for ourselves, we're going to face, be faced with things where we have to deny what we see in order, for what, in order for us to believe what God said. So just like Samuel, we look at it and we say, okay, I see the situation with my eyes, but I know there must be something more because I know what God spoke. And so, um, so then he says... Oh, real quickly. Do you remember another time when someone's hands fell? Remember what happened? It was Moses. They battled the Amalekites. As long as Moses' hands were in the air, Israel prevailed. But when his hands began to fall, the Amalekites prevailed. And so what happened? Some of Moses' friends came along and said, Moses, we'll hold your hands up for you when you get too weak to hold them up. Because when your hands fall, we lose. I promise you, there's going to be times where you look around and you see, hey, their hands are starting to fall and God calls you to come over and lift up their hands for them. Trusting that it's not going to be forever, but for right now, they need my help. They need me to come along. I, I'm, I, we said this a couple weeks ago and I preached this a long time ago. I'm telling you, I know the reason that Jesus let Simon carry his cross. I know it. Not because he needed it. He was still fully God. He hadn't taken on the curse of sin. He could have beat him forever. He's beaten, like we said, you know, like he's beaten so badly it says that he's, he's unrecognizable almost as a human. Marred more than any of the sons of man. He's beaten so badly. He's just this grotesque lump of flesh and yet he's still capable of carrying a cross because he's still fully God and still fully man. Because the sin of the world hasn't been placed upon him yet. And so... He could have carried that cross from here to China and back. But he lets another man carry his cross. Why? Because he's letting us see that no matter how strong you are, no matter how much faith you have, no matter how closely you walk with God, there may be a time where for a season someone comes along and helps to carry your cross with you. Helps to carry your burdens. There's a command that says to carry each other's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. 
You understand there's a part of the law of Christ that can't be fulfilled if you don't help to bear each other's burdens, which means there's a part of the law of Christ that can't be fulfilled if you don't let someone at some time come along and help you bear your burdens. Self-reliance is pride. That's all it is. It may be well-intentioned, but at the, at the core, it's pride. Listen, I promise you, that verse is not in the Bible just to make it a sentence longer. It's in there because there's going to be times in your life where other people have to come along and help you carry the load because it's too much for you to carry by yourself. It doesn't make you less than Christian. It actually makes you just like Him. Because He allowed another man to carry His for a time. Alright. It gets really good here. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst. Remember when... Uh, Remember when the angel came and declared that Jesus was going to be born and he said this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He's saying there's a day coming when God will no longer be off where his presence has to be separated from you. That once again, God will be where he's always desired to be from the beginning. He'll be back in your midst walking and talking with man and amongst his people. It says he wasn't satisfied to be contained by tents that were made with human hands. What he's saying, I never wanted to live there. I never wanted my presence to be separated from the people. You chose that. That wasn't my heart from the beginning. From the beginning, I created you and I put you in a garden and I dwelt in the garden with you and I would come and walk with you and talk with you and I'd find you. And sin didn't make me change, it made you change. But there's one coming who will restore all things. And he said that his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. What was, what, was, what was being declared there was the day has come when he is born where once again God dwells among man. So, so, so he says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. Remember we read in Colossians that he defeated the enemy and made a public spectacle out of him. So check and check, right? The Lord God is in our midst. Right? His presence is here. He said, I'll, Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So that's checked off. He's a victorious warrior. He's already won. He's already conquered. He already defeated the enemy. Right? So that means that all systems are go for these next two lines. Or three lines, sorry. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That word exalt there means to be cheerful or rejoice over you with joy. And that word joy means exceeding gladness or pleasure. Do you understand that the Father actually you bring him to a place of rejoicing and feeling extreme pleasure and gladness. Not the Christian that you know. Not that guy that you watched on YouTube. You. That you bring him to a place where he rejoices over you with extreme pleasure and gladness. You. Not you on your best day. Not you on that one day where you just really lived it out. He did it then too. But His rejoicing over you isn't because of what you've done. His rejoicing over you is because of who you are. And because of His love for you, not because of your love for Him. It's not based on what you've done. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in a place of trying to earn it. I promise you, if the only time you could ever picture God rejoicing over you is when you did something right, you're stacking yourself up and setting yourself up to live a legalistic lifestyle that says that God's happy with me when I do the right thing and He's angry at me when I do the wrong thing. And if you've ever had children, you can understand so perfectly, and He's a perfect Father, not even flawed like us. 
you can understand so perfectly how a child can do the wrong thing and you can still love that child even while hating the very thing that they've done. I promise you guys know what that's like. When you come in and they've finger painted with something they ate four hours before, you can hate what they have done. (laughs) Don't ask someone that's a parent to explain that to you later if you don't get it. But, but why, how could they paint with their food if they already, oh. You can hate what they have done with a vengeance, but you look at that child and your heart melts because you just love them so much. And he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, what was he saying? You guys aren't even perfect like me. So if we can do that, imagine how much more the Heavenly Father can look at you and hate the very thing that you've done and still be so wildly in love with you that He rejoices over who you are. That's what He's declaring here. Then He says, He will be quiet in His love. The NIV puts it in a a good way, I think. It says, in His love He will no longer rebuke you. In His love for you, He'll no longer be a voice of condemnation because of His great love for you. He sent His Son. And Jesus said this in John 3.16. Every bit of this is fulfilled in Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge, that word there, judge, or condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now listen, that doesn't mean that He's going to be quiet in His love for us. As in, God's just going to quietly love you from a distance. It's saying that he, the, the, the condemnation, that the, that the record of sin that was against you, that the decree that was hostile against you, that forever declared, the blood that cried out from the ground for vengeance and for justice was silenced by the blood of Jesus as mercy triumphed over judgment. And he's saying he's no longer going to be in the place of condemning. Why? Because Jesus came to the world not so that you could be condemned, but that through Him you might be saved. He didn't send Jesus so that He could love you. He sent Him because He does. It's not like He hated you and then He sent Jesus and now He's forced to love you. It says, for God so loved that He sent. We have this thing mixed up sometimes in our mind where we feel like God hated us, but Jesus came and talked Him into accepting us. It was God's idea. It wasn't like God was in heaven wanting to just kill everybody and Jesus went to him and said, Father, uh, me and Holy Spirit have this plan and if you would just allow us, I'll go there and die for them. And then their sin will be gone and then you could love them. I know you hate them and I know you want to kill them, but please don't kill them. Father, allow me. No, that's not what happened. It says God loved you so He sent Jesus. It was His idea from the beginning. He said it in the garden. He said there's one coming, the seed of a woman, and you will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That was his idea. He wasn't in heaven ready to kill you, but Jesus talked him out of it and came and died in your place. No, he was in heaven loving you and wanting relationship with you, and so he sent his son so that through him you wouldn't be condemned, but you would be saved. Then he says this, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That word rejoice there is the word Gilgul. And it means to spin around violently under the influence of emotion. Let this crash into your idea of Santa God who sits quietly on a throne, distant, 
wishing he could kill you, but can't because of Jesus. Or the judge who's looking and making, seeing what you do and, and, and giving you what you deserve based on what you've done. Let this crash in on that idea. It says he will spin in circles with violent emotion over you. Go ahead, just for a second. I'm going to be quiet, which is rare on a Sunday morning. And I want you to just picture God, whatever he looks like to you, spinning wildly with emotion. And then, add this to the picture. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. That, that word shouts there, Renaud, means a shout or proclamation or singing in triumph. So your God, the one who sits on the throne, whose footstool is the earth, who speaks and the sun comes roaring forth, who broods over dark water, says, let there be light, divides light from day, who measures the universe in the span of his hand. That's what it says. It measures it in the span of his hand. That God spins violently in circles and sings or shouts with triumphant joy over you. Have you ever asked him, God, what are you singing? You ever asked him, God, what are you saying? Have you ever stopped to think that if you made us capable of hearing and he's singing and shouting, that maybe there's a place where he actually wants us to not just know that he does it, but actually know what he's saying? Would it shock you to know that someone with a lesser covenant than us may have accessed that and wrote about it? Psalm 139, verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I wake, I'm still with you. David in the Old Covenant knew not only that God had so many thoughts towards him that they were as countless as the grains of sand, but he also knew that they were precious towards him. How did he know that? See, you know that because you read it in the Bible, but at some point, David, who had a lesser covenant than you, who wasn't born again and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who didn't even know Jesus, at some point he didn't have a, a book to read that told him that, yet he knew that God had thoughts towards him that were as countless as grains of sand on the, uh, in the desert and that they were precious. How did he know that? I asked myself that question lately. How did he know? I felt like God responded simply. He asked me. Are you sure he didn't climb to the top of a mountain and sacrifice the tears of a bald eagle? No. See, because we want things to be hard and we want there to be this, this ritual and this process that we have to go through. Remember, that's why when the prophet um, told uh, Nathan how to be healed, he said to him, he said, I'm not going to swim in that dirty river. And his servant says to him, listen, if he would have told you some great thing, you would have done it. Why would you despise what he's told you? Because it's simple. 
If David would have said, I fasted for X number of days, and I prayed these seven prayers continually, and I listened to this song by Jesus Culture on repeat the entire time, and I, you know, if he would have gave you a list and said, that's how I knew, you would go home and you would do it. But here's the thing. He doesn't say anything about doing that. The only thing that David had with the Father was an intimate relationship where he talked to him and he understood that God not only t- could hear him, but that he could hear the Father. And so I would imagine if, he, if the, the only way he knew God's thoughts towards him were, he listened. He heard God speaking. And every time God was speaking, it was something precious towards him. And eventually David gets to a place where he goes, I can't even remember all the things you've said, but they've all been good. I can't even count them. It'd be like trying to count grains of sand in the desert. You could pick up a handful and spend the rest of your life. It would be useless because the second you thought you had a good count going, you'd drop 72 billion. David's saying, look, there's so many towards me, I can't even count them all, and every one of them has been precious towards me. But does that mean that everything that God says to me Sounds like roses and butterflies. No, sometimes God will say corrective things, but even corrective things are precious because we understand we're being loved by a Father. And if He loves us and we're His children, then He disciplines those He loves. We've got to get this idea out of our head that says that, well, if God, God only says good things and God only says encouraging things, and so that means that nothing that could be said would be anything but corrective. Listen, a corrective word should be one of the most encouraging things that you could ever receive because it means the Father's eyes are on you and He sees something in your life that's going to cause you problems and He wants you to turn from it. How loving does a corrective word, like listen, like, like if your son is running out into the road chasing a ball and there's a car coming and you scream, stop! It doesn't sound so loving until you realize that them stopping kept them from getting run over by a car. Suddenly it's the most loving thing you could have done. It didn't sound kind and sweet in the moment, but you understand that you were more concerned for them than you were how it would sound when they heard it. We've got to get to a place where we're more concerned about people than we are the way that we're going to sound when we're saying what God wants us to say. You, you realize that when Samuel called Jesse out, and I'm just going to close up with this. You realize that when Samuel called Jesse out, he was basically saying, you've been disobedient. You're trying to lie to me. Because he already told him, get me all of your sons. He's got all of his sons. But he says, there must be another son. What's he saying? You've been disobedient. Samuel didn't care if Jesse took it the wrong way because he wanted to do what God called him to do more than he wanted Jesse to be happy about what he said to him. Is he thankful that Jesse responded not in pride saying, no, I don't. Imagine that. You know how many times people have done that though? You, God shows you something, you go and talk to them, and look, you look and go, uh-uh. You're like, dude, I, I, like, you, you told me everything I said was true up to this point where it's something that needs to be corrected. Like, what are the chances I know all that and I miss this? Mm-mm. Why, I know what God told me. Mm-mm. Jesse could have done that all day. He looked at Samuel and said, no, what would have happened? In the end, Jesse would have suffered. David still would have became king. And then Jesse would have had something to deal with. Listen, you can deny what God's saying to you all that you want. It doesn't change the fact that he's saying it. And it doesn't change the fact that what he's saying is true. And the sooner you say, okay, you're right. There's another one on the backside of the hill. 
send a servant and get him and bring him here, the sooner what God wants to accomplish will come to pass in your life. So uh, this is what I, I want us to do. Next week we're going to do something, uh, an activity that's a little different because we're going to start talking about when we hear God for other people and the ways that God speaks. But just let's take a second. And just, just because when we leave here, we're going to go out with our families, we're going to eat, we go out to the world and everything's busy. If you've never done that or if you've done it a lot, just take a second. And just quiet yourself. Be still before Him and know He's God. And then just ask Him, God, if your thoughts towards me are as countless as grains on the sand in the desert, could I just have one? Would you just show me one thought that you have towards me? One precious thought. Let's just do that real quick. Just take a minute. Quiet yourself before Him. And just ask Him. And don't be surprised when it's better than something you could have made up. Hey, how many of you guys felt like God showed you one of his thoughts towards you and shared something with you? It could have been a picture. I, I just heard a verse. I have loved you with an everlasting love. A lot of times when God speaks to me, that's how he speaks, through Scripture. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it could just be a picture. He could show you a picture. But how many of you, raise your hand, felt like you, 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 you know something about the heart of God towards you in that time of just quieting yourself before him and saying, God, okay, listen, so here's what I want us to do. If that verse is true for David, it's true for you. And it's true for every person you come into contact with. How about this week? Let's take some time every single day and just get alone with Him and say, God, would you, would you share with me some of those precious thoughts you have? There is countless as grains of sand. Could you just share a couple with me? I want to know your heart for me, God. I want to know what makes you squeal and scream and spin around in circles over me, God. Because sometimes I don't see it. But you see something I don't. I want to know what brings you such great pleasure when you see me. Because the Bible is true. And it's true for you. So that means that He spins in circles and sings over your life. Just ask Him, God, what is it that you see that makes you do that? You thought my life was worth the blood of your Son. What did you see? That when you held up the life of Jesus and my life in the scale, the scales tipped in my favor? Because while it's true that it was for everyone, it's also true that it was for you. You know, God so loved the world, but He also so loved you that He sent His Son 
And just start asking Him these things. God, what do you see? What makes you do that? You ever been so excited you just jumped and spun? I've caught my wife doing it. She didn't know I was home and I hear upstairs. And then I hear and I'm thinking, what in the world is going on up there? And I come upstairs and I hear my wife rejoicing and praising God and she's so excited that she's jumping in the air and spinning like a top. And I, one time I, I busted her and I said, what are you doing? She's like, oh. She's like, I sometimes just get this inside me where I have to let it out. She's like, I can't help it. If people saw me, they'd think I'm a weirdo. I'm like, yep, I saw you and I do think you're a weirdo. (laughs) But listen, if he asked you to shout with an ear-splitting shout and he told you to leap in the air with joy, it's not because he wants you to do that to fulfill a command. It's because there's a place in his heart where those things are a natural response. Just like giving. If he said the Lord loves a cheerful giver, then that means there's a place where you understand why you're giving that you can actually give cheerfully. Not just in theory, but actually believing it's true. So God, I thank You for that. I thank You for Your thoughts towards us, God. I thank You that, that, that who You are, God, just keeps getting expanded. That our idea of You, God, that, that our picture of You just keeps, it keeps evolving and changing as we know You more, God. And as we see you more, as we understand you more, God, I pray that during this week you would speak so clearly to us about what it is you see that causes you to react that way. God, that every person listening right now would hear you during the week as you speak to them through your word, God, through the spirit of God inside of them, through other people around them, God, dreams, visions, whatever it is, however you need to reach them, God, I just pray that during this week that some of those countless sands of, 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 of the desert would, would come into their life, God, that they would know the thoughts You have towards them. That You would show them what it is You see and why You're so excited about them. Why You rejoice over them. And then our response when we hear that, God, would be that we would shout and leap and be filled with joy. Because when You tell us who we are, we see ourselves even more clearly. And it allows us to see others even more clearly. That as we begin to believe what You say about us is true, we can start to believe it for others. And as we believe things for other people, God, we begin to believe it for ourselves. I just thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen.